Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about the environment, engineering, and health on Earth and space and beyond, with your host, Cole Lutz. Dr. Michael Hollick, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. We hope you're getting enough sunlight up there in Boston. Yep. I mean, um, in Boston right now, it's raining for the past couple of days, but typically at about this time of the year, um, it's, it's a pretty uh, efficient in making vitamin D. We know that time of day, season, latitude, degree of skin pigmentation, and even altitude makes a difference. And to give you an example is that if you were at the equator you and it's eight o'clock in the morning in the summertime and your bright sunlight, you basically will not make any vitamin D in your skin. It's only between about 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And it all has to do with the angle of the sun. So, for example, in the wintertime in Boston, right, is that the zenith angle is, um, you know, at 35 degrees or, um, or less. And as a result, the vitamin D producing rays, the ultraviolet B radiation from the sun has to go through a longer path length. And as a result, the vitamin D radiation making vitamin D is absorbed by the ozone layer and never reaches the earth's surface to any significant degree. And so that's why if you live basically above Atlanta, Georgia, you will not make any significant vitamin D in your skin from starting at around 1st of November until again, mid to late March. And the further north you are, the longer is that time period. Wow. Um, I was wondering if, uh, uh, it seems like our, our skin cells uh, might be possible to make less amount of vitamin D in in the um in the winter months in in, uh, in what during the winter months in well basically you can't make any right really really <laughs> okay and as I just explained to you it's because the the vitamin D producing rays are absorbed by the ozone layer so they never get to your skin so you can't essentially make any vitamin D during the winter time if you live above Atlanta Georgia. And even if you live in Florida, you're only making about maybe 15 to 20% of what you could have been making uh, in the summertime. Yeah. Right, so that's why you make vitamin D at around nine, 10 o'clock it begins and it abruptly ends at around three to four o'clock, even in the summertime, um, no matter where you are on this planet. Um, is is the vitamin D production correlated with the UV flux here? Well, it's correlated with UVB radiation. So all radiation below 290 nanometer, the most uh, highest energy, the most damaging, is absorbed by the ozone layer. And now between 290 and 315 nanometers, that radiation... Uh, will make vitamin D. The peak is at around 295 nanometers. At 315, basically you make none. 
And at 290, you're probably making about maybe 50 to 60% of what you can make at 295 nanometer radiation. So theoretically, we couldn't, you're saying we can't produce vitamins from like infrared wavelengths. From what? So I have a hard time hearing you. From, so, so you're saying we couldn't produce uh, vitamins from infrared wavelengths. Infrared, yes, you cannot produce vitamin D from infrared wavelengths. Only ultraviolet B radiation. And less than about 1%, even at the equator, reaches the Earth's surface, right? So you can understand why when you change the zenith angle of the sun, it makes a very big difference as for how much vitamin D you can make. Well, it seems mighty important, this uh, vitamin D stuff. That was... Notice some of your work and uh, that there's an endocrinologist really specializing in vitamin D and uh, really helping lead and pioneer this this important research over the past few decades more. Yep, I mean, I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And um, back when I first started in 1979, when it was suggested, you know, you're going to work in vitamin D, as a graduate student, I had no interest whatsoever because it was a very boring subject, right? It was found in cod liver oil. It prevents rickets in children. And so why do you care? But it turns out that once you make vitamin D in your skin or you ingest it in your diet, it goes to your liver and it's converted to 25-hydroxy vitamin D. I discovered that in human blood in 19... Um, 79 and, um, and and I'm sorry, 1969, and um, and received my master's degree for that. Um, and that is the form of vitamin D that you go to your doctor to find out if you have a normal vitamin D status. So when you're getting a vitamin D blood test, that's what it is: 25 hydroxy vitamin D. It's the major circulating form, but it's biologically inert. And it goes to your kidneys and gets activated to 125 dihydroxy vitamin D, leaves the kidneys and goes to your intestine. And it tells your intestine to absorb the calcium from your diet into your bloodstream. Your body cares very much about your blood calcium because it con controls most metabolic functions and uh, neuromuscular activity. And so it preserves your blood calcium and vitamin D helps to do that. If you're not getting enough from your diet, then vitamin D along with parathyroid hormone goes to the bone and starts to remove the calcium and your matrix from your bone, causing um, osteopenia and osteoporosis later in life and causes a painful bone disease known as osteomalacia. Amazing. Uh, I think the body and how it works, and it's just always so mind-boggling to comprehend everything going on. Yes. And I, happily, like I said, I was in the right place at the right time. So I'm the one that identified 
the active form of vitamin D, and I was and I was able to receive my PhD degree for it. And then my roommate and I were the first to chemically make it, and we gave it to kidney failure patients who had bone disease because before that we knew that patients with kidney disease had severe bone disease, often were wheelchair bound, had very painful bone disease. And nobody could understand why until we realized, aha, the kidneys activate vitamin D. And so my roommate and I were the first to chemically make it. We gave it to kidney failure patients. And those that were wheelchair bound, had severe bone pain, started feeling better and they started walking again. So that was my introduction basically into translational medicine, how basic fundamental knowledge can have a major impact on your health. We were wondering if the, if the D3 precursor hydroxyl needs to go to the kidney um, needs to go where? If it needs to go to the kidney to provide vitamin D for other cells. So, sorry, don't understand the question. Like, if we could synthesize vitamin D without going to the kidneys, like if skin ah. cells near the heart or brain could, um, you know, save all that time and just uh, more of a localized approach. Uh, I think Mother Nature was pretty clever in in its the design of the system. Um, we know that once you make vitamin D in your skin, you ingest it in your diet. It goes to your body fat, and so it helps you, especially in the winter time when you can't make any and you're using up your body fat um, to keep your vitamin D levels normal. We do know, however, that your brain and and your um, blood vessels and colon and breast and prostate all can activate vitamin D locally. And that's a major new concept in the field of vitamin D. So that vitamin D doesn't only regulate calcium metabolism and good for your bone health, but we believe that these local activations regulate your immune system, regulate cellular growth, um, reduce risk for um, many chronic illnesses, including deadly cancers, neurocognitive dysfunction, type two diabetes, autoimmune disorders like type one diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and Crohn's disease, uh, among others. So there's really two stories to vitamin D. One is its primary objective, make sure your blood calcium is normal and you have good healthy bones. And then, your body can begin to utilize the 25-hydroxy vitamin D and it activates it, uses it, and then immediately destroys it. So it never gets back out into the bloodstream. Seems like their uh, vitamin D is packaged to a more ingestible form for cells. Sorry, say it again. I yeah, I don't know. Um, it sounds really important for our health. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, we think it's critically important from birth until death. I mean, there's evidence, for example, during pregnancy that pregnant women 
who are vitamin D deficient are more likely to have preeclampsia. They're more likely to require a C-section and that their infants are more likely to have uh, wheezing disorders earlier in life and even increased risk for dental caries. And remember reading about how, what is it, 80% of the American population is vitamin D deficient. So we've done studies and others have as well, basically worldwide, depending upon what your definition is for vitamin D deficiency, right? Like I said, 25-hydroxy vitamin D is what you want to measure. And the Endocrine Society practice guidelines, I chaired that committee, and all the members were experts in the field of vitamin D. We concluded that vitamin D deficiency is less than 20 nanograms per ml insufficiency 21 to 29 nanograms per ml and sufficiency 30 nanograms per ml and above. Using that information, we estimate that worldwide about a billion people are vitamin D deficient or insufficient. On average, 40% of the world's population, children and adults are deficient, less than 20 nanograms per ml. And 60% are deficient or insufficient, i.e. less than 30 nanograms per ml. In the bloodstream. That... Correct. Wow. It seems uh, yeah, like the lifelong habit for me to take these uh, uh, siestas in the in the sunlight. Well, I mean, we were born, right, and, and and have evolved in sunlight. And not a surprise that of all the nutrients where you can get them for your diet, probably one of the most important, if not the most important, vitamin D, whether nature decided the best way is exposure to sunlight because our hunter-gatherers were outside all the time. And so you didn't have to worry about the vagaries of your diet. Right. If you live very far north, right, then whale blubber and seal blubber and polar bear liver were good sources of vitamin D uh, for those populations, as well as oily fish like salmon, mackerel, herring. Well, well, if we find ourselves up in the the North South Pole anytime soon, we'll keep that in mind. Uh, any any other vitamin D jokes there? So, I mean, the recommendation from the Endocrine Society Practice Guidelines is infants should be on 400 to 1,000 units a day, especially breastfed infants, because there is essentially no vitamin D in human breast milk. And then for children, the recommendation is 600 to 1,000 units a day. And in my opinion, teenagers should be treated like adults. 1,500 to 2,000 units a day. And if you're obese, the fat-soluble vitamin gets diluted in your body fat. And so as a result, you need two to three times more to satisfy that requirement. I typically have most of my patients on minimum of 3,000 um, international units a day 
and up to 5,000, many of my patients are on. I personally take 6,000 every day. And my blood level of 25-hydroxy-D is 72 nanograms per ml. Wow. Um, I was reading there are a lot of ways to for the vitamin D testing too, and as well. But thank you for uh, for sharing. And I I try to get um, I'm usually receiving around uh, at least thirty minutes of uh, sunlight uh, per day as the primary source of my natural vitamin D production. Right. So two things to think about, right? Because this is what the press loves. And you and you hear this from everyone, uh, even the experts who really aren't experts because they've never done the studies. I have, all right? Time of day, season, latitude, degree in skin pigmentation, how much clouds are outside. So there's really only one thing to do. And so more than a decade ago, I teamed up with Ontometrics Inc. And we developed an app called dminder.info, D-M-I-N-D-E-R.I-N-F-O. It's free on your Android and on your um, Apple device. And it will tell you essentially anywhere on this planet when you could begin to make vitamin D, how much vitamin D you make, and it warns you to get out of the sun so you don't get a sunburn. So this concept out there that, oh, 15 minutes a day. Well, if it's eight o'clock in the morning, you could be out there for the hour and you're not gonna make any, right? It's it's between 10 a.m. and about 3 p.m. And at 10 p.m., you're just beginning to. And at 3 p.m., it's already going down, right? So it's really between about 11 and two in the afternoon where everybody avoids the sun, right? And then it's your skin type. So it looks like you probably a skin type um, three maybe, right? Um, always tan, maybe sometimes burn, right? And um, we know that skin pigment, of course, absorbs the vitamin D producing rays, decreasing the efficiency of your skin to produce it. And that's why the app is helpful. But also, if you put a sunscreen on with, say, an SPF of 30 properly, you reduce the amount of UV getting into your skin by almost 98%. And so therefore you reduce your ability to make vitamin D in your skin by 98%. So my recommendation has been that you can use the app, right? Or if you know your skin type and you know when you were to go outside on the beach in June at noontime and you're gonna get a sunburn after 30 minutes, then the recommendation would be for about half that time, always protect your face, right? Because it's the most sun exposed and most sun damaged, but arms and legs, abdomen and back in a bathing suit is, is we think perfectly fine because that's what our hunter gatherers were doing. Awesome. Be sure to check that out, dminder.info. And is reading some some people consider you the father of vitamin D. It's not. Well, it's kind of them to say so. I mean, a lot of people have, have done work in the vitamin D field. And I wrote 
the 100-year anniversary history on vitamin D. If you're interested, send me an email and I'll, and I'll send you a copy of it. But it explains in great detail all that went on in the thought process and the discovery of vitamin D and how vitamin D was found to be metabolized and, and a personal experience for me as to how I was successful in being able to identify the major circulating form in human blood and the active form of vitamin D. It uh, seems like your work and research uh, thought, uh, really founded this commercial market and, and billion dollar sales market too vitamin D? Yep. I mean, you know, I think that supplements are a very hot commodity these days. I mean, back in the 90s, when I was at the time promoting vitamin D for your health, nobody cared. And so if you went to your local pharmacy, there wasn't any vitamin D supplements. And now you can find a, easily a dozen different varieties on um, the shelves in pharmacies. My recommendation to my patients is that you know, CVS um, or Walgreens is perfectly fine. Um, as long as it's been produced by a major manufacturer that you can trust, right? Not on the internet with some group that you don't know anything about. And um, they usually you know, have the amount plus about 20, 30% more vitamin D in their tablet or capsule. We found from our experience, that you can take vitamin D on a full stomach, empty stomach with fat, without fat, does not make any difference. Vitamin D will be absorbed equally fine. And it's absorbed equally fine in a tablet, in an oil, in a lozenger, um, doesn't seem to make any difference. I'm a fan of the plant-based vitamin Pardon? D sources. I'm a fan of the plant-based vitamin, yep. vitamin D. So sources. the plant-based is really yeast-based. Yeast produce ergosterol. And when you're irradiated, it's ultimately converted to vitamin D2. That was the first vitamin D discovered back in the 1930s. And that was used for supplements and for fortification of milk. And it works very well. I am not aware of any plant source of vitamin D, even though they, they have been promoting some on the internet. In my opinion, I'm not aware of any that are reliable. But yes, coming from yeast uh, and vitamin D2, um, we showed works equally fine as vitamin D3. Yeah, it looks like there are a good amount of foods here that help that synthesize vitamin D. Um, I'll have to check it out. But uh, yeah, one one of our professors was uh, sharing uh, one of the one of the jokes that uh, that's what the D in PhD stands for. <laughs> Great, I'm happy with that. That's a vitamin D deficiency, you know? Yep. We, we, so the last question here, we were um, 
also doing some research into uh, vitamin synthesis and noticed there's a whole heck of a lot of uh, plants and other uh, life forms that uh, synthesize vitamin B and vitamin C from sunlight. I guess we're, we're wondering if, if humans and other mammalian skin cells could synthesize other vitamins and precursors from sunlight. Um, in my opinion, not that I'm aware of, but we do know that when you're exposed to sunlight, there's a lot of photochemistry going on in your skin. So, for example, you instantly release nitric oxide and stimulate the production of nitric oxide. It's the explanation for why people feel more relaxed. Their blood pressure goes down because it causes vasodilation. It, you make beta endorphin. We showed this many years ago and others have as well. You feel better when you're out in the sun. And it's in part due to stimulating the gene that produces beta endorphin in your skin. And there's evidence that that beta endorphin in your skin gets into your bloodstream and goes to your brain, making you feel better. It also turns out curiously that hemoglobin, when exposed to certain wavelengths of sunlight, will release carbon monoxide, which we, of course, consider to be um, a, a toxic substance. But it turns out that when made in tiny amounts in the body, in your skin, and in your bloodstream, it acts as a neurotransmitter and also causes vasodilation. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for your work and research. And, uh, uh, yes. My pleasure. And like I said, if you want the review, I'll be happy to send it to you. It was published in the journal Nutrients um, this year. And um, and it's free online. Thanks so much, so, Dr. Hollick. Have a delightful day. <laughs> Thank you.